All content on this channel is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be construed as professional financial advice. Should you need such advice, please consult a licensed financial or tax advisor. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of information on this channel. So we are live, um, and we are talking today about the stock uh, Palantir. I think their ticker symbol is PLTR. Um, and so, Eric, you know, I think we we both do some research about these companies before we do the podcast. And um, I did a bunch of I did I did my deep dive on Palantir, and the scariest part I think about this whole thing is even after my deep dive, I don't think I could tell you exactly what they do. Did you read their S1? I did. I skimmed through their S1 filings. I've never, I've never read a more ambiguously worded S1 about the company <laughs> itself. I, I came away with knowing less than I did when I started reading it. And yeah. I just, I, I couldn't really dig into it. I mean, you know, for, for my day job, we do a ton of stuff in data science and machine learning and AI. You know, I would say at least half of our clients claim to do parts of that. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's a heavily funded area. I mean, AI right now, AI startups is like the biggest uh, industry space that they've right. got. I think up, upwards of 30 billion put into startups in the last couple of years, maybe even this year. Um, so mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I don't remember where I saw the statistic, but like it, it, it's a hot space. It's very buzzwordy. You know, it's up there like they do big data. Nobody knows what that means. It's just massive amounts of data. Machine right. learning, you can kind of explain. AI, you know, it depends how you apply it. But, you know, every company that's doing anything with any kind of algorithm claims they're doing AI. And unless you go into the detail about how the software works and what it's actually predicting or, or enabling you to predict, it's very hard to to understand the technology. And the thing here is because it's all government customers, they don't disclose Mm -hmm. anything. So good luck. Good luck figuring out what they do. Right. So, yeah, I I, I really was just trying to get a a really good sense about exactly what the customer experience was like. But they did talk a lot about generalities and more about connectiveness of data than anything else. And that, to me, is like a super fuzzy notion. and so I just came away super confused about what they actually do. Um, but on, on a high level, uh, as I understand it, their products really come in two flavors. There's one called Palantir Gotham. And that's software for government customers. And then there's another one called Palantir Foundry. And that one is more for the commercial customers like uh, you know, they'll work with BP or um, they'll work with Chrysler or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. And then underlying those two products, Gotham and Foundry, um, is Apollo. And as I understand it, uh, Apollo is all about um, the de- underlying infrastructure or uh, continuous deployment of uh, both uh, supporting both Gotham and Foundry for, for the customers. So it's kind of this underlying platform that that works for both of them. That's what I've understood from them. 
Um, yeah, I mean, it looks like at, at the core of it, they have some kind of algorithm, an AI-driven algorithm that can search huge data sets and find, you know, actionable insights. That's that's kind of the, the phrasing. That can be applied anywhere, right? And then what you do with it, right? An interface through the data. There's uh, they have a a system that's scanning. They have a, a a GUI, right? So they've got kind of um, a visualization tool so that you can kind of graph out all this stuff. They have a feature called Graph on there that I imagine is just uh, you know some recognition and display uh, in a visualization tool. So you know all of that's the same. You know, different names for different pro different types of customers, but it's the same underlying engine there. It's it's an AI driven large data set scanner ultimately, and then maybe some visualization layered on top. Right, right. So, yeah, that's their their product. And um, one of the things that I was struggling with on this was that I came away with a bias against Palantir, actually. Like, the, the bias actually um, came from, like, two sources. So one is kind of, like, on the social implications of what they're doing um, and the worries about what they're doing. Um, in terms of the broader aspects of like privacy mm-hmm. and surveillance in society. Um, and the second one was just purely about like the economics, the financials and the rates of growth. Um, so on, on one hand, you know, there's been a lot of controversy about like the use of talent here. It's a powerful, supposedly a very powerful software tool. And what it's supposed to do is connect data uh, that was previously siloed in different places. Um, and fuse the data in a way where it's very easy for operators to understand and work with and find relationships amongst the data. And, um, you know, if one of the case studies that they had had was that LAPD actually uses Palantir. And the scenario, like the weird surveillance scenario that I was coming up with in my head um, was that, you know, there's video cameras that watch license plates all the time. And Palantir confused data from uh, license plates and uh, driver's licenses and uh, maybe credit card records and uh, home addresses and uh, insurance records and all sorts of things in a way where it could be used for good things, right? Like figuring out um, the identities of criminals um, and being able to track them and be able to find them. But it could also be used yeah. for like weird applications. Like, for example, if one of the users who has access to Palantir Gotham starts using all of that stuff to spy on his ex-wife and see where she's moving, right? Using the video surveillance records of her license plate. And that seems like a very it, it seems like it's so easy to abuse the system that you begin to worry that, you know, this Palantir object, which is this all-seeing ball, like a reference to the Lord of the Rings, um, uh, 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 you know, all-seeing eye, um, w- whether or not it's being used for good or if it's being misused. That's the biggest social implication I have for that. Yeah, I mean, aside from, of course, there's there's ethical concerns about this type of technology in general. They have, and that's stuff you wouldn't know they're using it for. Even the stuff you do know they're using it for, they, they're no stranger to controversy, right? They work with ICE. That's uh, mm-hmm. probably the most well-known, you know, polarizing customer they have. And that was a project, I believe, Google rejected out of hand, 
to, to do that work uh, on their own, you know, former motto of uh, do good or whatever it was. Uh, you know, they, that's not a project they wanted. They're doing work now with, you know, uh, health services, the CDC around like COVID data tracking. So like, it's a tool, right? You can use it for evil. You can use it for good. You know, I don't think they're making a moral ethical play. They're just saying we have the ability to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and I, I, to be honest, as an investor, I kind of like that amorality. I don't want them, you know, I want them doing whatever's best for the bottom line. And, and I wouldn't mm-hmm. be comfortable with them making decisions. And look, you can make, you know, ethical only investments or a company. You know, I, I won't invest in a company that you know, uses child labor or, or, uh, you know, whatever, whatever terrible things you want. And that's fine. And there, there's funds, right. there's ETFs that, that you can trade that only do ethical investing. I don't think it's not ethical because someone, you know, there, there are people that are super pro strong borders and ice is a perfectly legitimate strategy. I may not agree with that, but it's not, it's not, it's not immoral, right? There, I feel like there's a difference there. And, and yeah, there's a ton of controversy. We could also talk about their founder and, and the, the management team there is also highly controversial. But mm-hmm. I think there's something about this kind of technology that's, you know, super appealing when you take out all of the, the implications and everything else and you just look at it as pure tech. This company's attracting some of the best talent in industry. I mean, and I, I'm right. saying that from, you know, my own anecdote, Scuttlebutt. Uh, when I talk to, you know, potential clients of mine on other types of consulting projects, you know, the, one of their best selling points is, oh, this guy was at Palantir, right? This guy ran data operations oh, interesting. for Palantir. He's our chief data officer. I mean, it's a big selling point. It's considered, you know, the what Google was maybe 10 years ago, where if you got an engineering job at Google, it was a big deal. I think if you're in data science or tech at this company, there's a lot of cachet there. And, and I, to be honest, I wonder how much of that is because of this, you know, not taking moral high ground like a Google or you see Facebook pretending to do. And it's just telling it like it is, right? Like we're, we're this technology company. We're building the best possible software to do this stuff. You know, uh, you can do what you want with it. And, and yeah. the government of all entities makes it really difficult to decide who makes those choices. And the interesting thing is, I think you were arguing that they were um, amoral. And I, I slightly disagree. But uh, I also agree with it as well. And the reason why is because um, they're, it, like, they do have a code of, uh, of ethics. And the founding principle for a Palantir is yeah. they view themselves as a protector of the West or a protector of the Western civilization, which is very interesting for a company to, uh, a position for a company to take. They and as the the implication of them being a protector of Western civilization that they only work in the government side with um, the U.S. government and also like allied government, quote unquote, to the to to to, to the U.S. like the U.K. or Australia or the European Union countries, um, and they've actually um, actively avoided um, taking on government contracts in. Um, uh, countries like China um, and also yeah, but Russia. you you'd have to say I mean you you can't argue that that's you know uh, that that's a, a a sense of morals that's a conflict of interest at a business level you can't work yes, with China yes, could be, and yeah. the United States so yeah I, I don't that's a <laughs> with that's quite a inference it, yeah. <laughs> yeah they and and they they so it, it could be at the heart of it they they haven't done cost, uh, deals with um, China and Russia because they're precluded. From doing so because they work with the U.S. government, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, they, they, they say they, they say that the founding 
idea behind Palantir was you um, you needed to have a technology that would protect Western civilization. That's what like like if you go all the way back to the founding of Palantir, it was Peter Thiel, who is this super controversial billionaire figure, um, and he he's, he leans more towards like the libertarian conservative side politically, and his idea was that you know coming out of PayPal, which he was one of the co-founders of. Um, PayPal had developed a lot of this like very intense software or very intense technology to detect or automatically detect um, fraud that was going on with PayPal. And fraud was so important to the survival. Detecting fraud was so important to the survival of PayPal that they put a lot of software resources and talent um, into trying to solve that problem, right? Like how does, like, and that's actually a hard problem because for, for PayPal, all they see is, a certain transaction, and how you do, how do you know that any given transaction is fraud or not? And they look at the patterns of the um, at the patterns of the the the, the charges um, that were going through um, PayPal in order to try to detect fraud. And his insight, Peter Thiel's insight, was that you could take some of that type of technology um, and apply it to solving the problems of Western civilization when they're faced with, let's say. Um, an existential threat um, that could um, really uh, threaten or endanger civilization. And at the time, he was thinking about um, terrorism um, and how that the the act of Western civilization trying to gear itself up to defend against terrorism um, could erode some of the qualities that we really truly hold dear in Western civilization, which is personal liberty, right? So we're mm-hmm. now beginning to make a trade-off between personal liberties and privacy, and then we're gonna erode some of that, it, sacrifice some of that in order to have more security against this threat that we're, we're, we perceive. And he thought, well, does it actually have, does there actually have to be a trade-off between um, privacy, personal liberty, um, and also your uh, security? Um, could technology actually allow us to have our cake and eat it too? Like have some measure of personal privacy privacy, and have some sort of measure of like liberty while also protecting us against threats. And so his insight was if you could take the stuff from PayPal and apply it broadly to solve the problems of the government, um, you would be able to um, find your way out of the this horrible trade-off we're forced to make when we're trying to um, protect ourselves against um, threats as a civilization. Um, and so that's, I guess that's where like the name Palantir comes from because he's thinking that the Palantir is this all-seeing eye that is supposed to quote-unquote protect the Shire, Shire being liberal democracy, um, you know, uh, our way of life, that kind of thing. Um, and you need the technology of the all-seeing eye to be able to uh, protect us from that. Now, that's all a lot of mythology. I'm saying it to you. I don't believe it myself. I actually worry a lot about the misuse of the all-seeing eye, right? Despite how good that technology is. Pe- if people are actually using it, uh, like, Everything depends on the people who are using it, not the technology itself. 
And I'm always very skeptical about human nature in the first place, to the extent where if there's technology that could be misused, you're pretty much certain that it's going to be misused, right? Um, so I'm a little skeptical on that claim. But, you know, that I'm just presenting to you the mythology behind the, the starting of Palantir and what maybe is part of their um, DNA since founding and probably something that influences the way they operate today. Um, and that's probably kind of useful for us to think about in terms of informing their larger vision about where they want to go and what they want to be and what their overall mission is. Um, and if we don't think about a company's mission, then it's hard to kind of see what like what their purpose of existing is in the first place and ultimately what value they bring to, uh, to their customers. So, um, yeah, it's so, always yeah. good to, to dr drill down into company names, right? There are meaningful. Uh, there's always some, you know, founder intent or some, you know, original intent there. Uh, so, yeah, it's interesting. I actually, I didn't look into where the name come from, came from. Uh, you know, I, I'd heard it in passing, but I didn't like dig into it. So that's that's good stuff. Yeah. And, you know, um, putting aside the uh, broader aspects of, um, you know, their implications for society, the use of this technology and the implications for society. And just thinking about like, okay, like putting the investor hat on and saying, um, you know, how, how, how do we make money off of this, right? Um, the, the, the hardest part for me um, was uh, realizing that today in like 2019, 2020-ish, um, they only have a very small number of customers. Um, as I recall in the S1, it's like on the order of 125, 127 maybe now uh, customers. Um, like, you know, for a company with the kind of cultural cachet that you said, you mentioned before, um, and its secretiveness and the fact that it seems to have its tentacles all over the place, uh, the fact that it only has 125 customers gives me a lot of pause. I'm like, well, shouldn't it be at, at least in the thousand range, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's one thing. They're also just starting sales. Right. Like, and this is the stuff I struggled with reading the S1, trying to understand their, you know, look, this reminds me of a company. Uh, I won't disclose the name. This reminds me of another AI company I worked with, uh, two years ago in industrial IOT space. Um, it's, uh, you know, the, the holy grail, the same idea, right? We can take, we can take, uh, deep insights from massive data sets and predict when machines will fail, when parts need to be replaced, when, uh, you know, you should, uh, you know, augment a build or, or remove a component, whatever it is, um, they could come in and, and basically tell you that. And that saves you, you know, billions of dollars as a big industrial manufacturer that you don't have to wait for a part to break before you fix it and have all that downtime. Um, and that, that whole predictive maintenance space has lots of different vendors. These guys were the biggest. They were one of the most well-funded. And, you know, listening to the pitch and seeing them talk to customers, it's amazing. But then you get under the hood, right? And you're like, okay, so how do you deliver this, right? Every single industrial environment is different. As I imagine the CIA and the FBI and the police force yeah. and the NASA, and they're all different. They're all very, very different. No matter how, yeah, you know, they're all, you know, government entities, but their internal structure, their IT, it's all going to be very, very different. So 
how much of this is actually a product versus a service? That's, that's always the most important part, right? Like services margins are tough. You need bodies. You need to put people on site. Look at any big, you know, services company, any uh, accounting firm or a consulting firm, right? Their margins are not like software margins. I mean, software margin, what do you expect? Anywhere between 25 and 50% on software margin. And that's a product yeah. you can sell to one customer and then sell to another. And you don't have to do much different. Maybe there's some elements you change. Maybe it's modular and there's components you can add or remove, but it's pretty cookie cutter. Consultants, that margin's anywhere from like 5 to 12%. You know, it's not great. And I know that because that's the business I'm in. There aren't yeah. huge margins there. You can't, you know, you're not going to make tons of money. The goal for any company here to scale is to have, you know, product that's scalable with a better mm-hmm. margin. That's how you make money with a limited number of customers they have, the high degree of, of, of customization required to service these contracts, they, from what I could dig out of that S1, it looks like 6.7% margin. Is that right? Is that what it had in there? Oh, yeah. And you know, their like, operating margin. Yeah, yeah. At the very Yeah, that's line. not good. Yeah. That's not yeah. good. That's really bad. And then I'm digging in more and I'm looking at, you know, their projections. They've got the second half of their fiscal 2020 they change that margin to 30%, 30.6%, right? That's really fishy, right? That's, that's, you know, what's their explanation in there? It's, it's the most generic. And this is the whole, the whole S1 reads like this to me, right? It's like, okay, well, how did that happen? Did you productize? Did you, did you, you know, now we sell foundry out of the box, right? Like what economies of scale and efficiency. That's what it is. You can't, you can't get anything out of that. So I'll tell you my, 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 you know, my bullshit radar is is on high alert here because I think anything they're doing is going to require tons and tons of custom man, man hour consulting work. And those margins, you know, if they're going to pay the the best talent in the industry and they're going to spend time getting this shit right, their margins are not going to be great. They're trading software company, but they're not a software company. They're a services company with some software. And that's a yeah. big, big difference. Yeah, I, you know, I think you, you you're getting into something that I I completely agree with, and it's one of the things that I had the biggest issue with. I think you're pointing out correctly that they are presenting themselves as like a software as a service company, you know, buy it, forget it type thing, lots of recurring revenue um, type deal, but it's not. It is this general purpose technology stack that they give to customers, but out of the box, it's useless. It needs a lot of like customization, understanding of the customer workflow, understanding of the customer's needs, understanding of what exactly the right kind of user interface customers like. And that requires Palantir to deploy a lot of what they call forward deployed engineers to be essentially embedded in organizations. Um, and run through this fast iterative process to get their general technology stack, um, like its first users, right? And as you said, that makes like, like at least that activity makes no economic sense. You're paying engineers six-figure salaries, not just one, but like a whole team of them and the support staff to like, you know, forward deploy into an organization, spend weeks, maybe months, I don't know, working on stuff in the hope that maybe, right, this small limited pilot, which is only going to bring in the contracts, only like, I don't know, $200,000, 
a hundred thousand dollars. That this this contract is going to get solidified and um, become something that actually pays them back. Um, so they have long sales cycles filled with lots of upfront costs with all these engineers you've got to already deploy. And for like itty bitty, teeny bitty contracts and like the initial economics, like literally make no sense. Now, I, I like, I want to st- like take a reverse here and present some of the bullish case because I think the uh, management understands that that's actually a very important um, criticism. And they tried to address it in their investor day. So I listened to the investor day and they, they give you a story that kind of hits back at that criticism that you've leveled at them. Um, and their story, according to what they were seeing, is that, look, actually, we did do that. We did do that terrible, horrible economic thing where we were spending all this money on forward deployed engineers. We were basically building a custom solution off of our generalized technology stack every single time for every single customer for peanuts. And we were losing horrible amounts of money every single time. And we did that for pretty much like 70% of our uh, existence. Um, And so maybe like that would be like seven, 10 years, seven, eight years, something like that. And they said that they were doing that and they bore those upfront losses because they were iterating. They were iterating their technology stack and they were iterating the way they were deploying um, their software. And that what they were doing was they were always measuring how long does it take from the time that the initial contract closes to the to get the customer to the point where they don't need our forward deployed engineers anymore to begin looking at their uh, to begin working by themselves and using the data on their own. And, you know, at first it took months, then it's like a month, then it's like a few weeks. And now they're touting that it takes hours for their software to be deployed. Um, And then the customer starts using it on their own. And they talk about using quote unquote, lots of R&D dollars to try to like shorten that timeframe. If we take that at face value, okay, that they have made this huge leap in their in their abilities to deploy software and get a customer to the point where it's like giving the customer value, then I can kind of see why that would be valuable. That kind of gets to the heart of what we were saying, which is that it's uneconomical for them to do what they've been doing for so long. And now they're saying is, yeah, that's right. It's uneconomical, but um, we've massively reduced it from a month's long deployment cycle to now a few hours deployment cycle. And um, that's going to massively ramp up our ability to serve many other people. So they're actually getting closer to a product rather than the service, customized service that you were accusing them of. Mm. Do you so believe that? I, I, I have a hard time. Um, I have a hard time with it because it is um, the, the data that they quote was like, you know, in the during the COVID response time, we integrated the CDC um, uh, and the U.S. health services organizations within hours. But that's like 
that's not an average time across all customer deployments. It's literally like a couple of customers and they're cherry picking the data. So it's hard to kind of like tell which parts are true and which parts are cherry picked data. And that's the part that scares me the most about this whole thing. But if you just take it their argument at face value, it looks great. But then if you dig into the specifics, it's really hard to get like true specifics about their um, their actual deployment number. Um, and they're, by the way, they're only 125 customers. So it's very easy for them to just cherry pick the best data, right? Um, that it takes forward deployed for two hours. But, you know, what if they weren't using a very complex thing? It was literally just Excel spreadsheets that you needed to tie together using Palantir, Gotham, Gotham. And what if they'd already had previous experience in this, you know, department? Um, and so they kind of already knew what was going on. And so that's why it only took two hours. But in a completely new organization, it might take three months, right? So like, it's hard for me to kind of get a sense for the true thing that they're, um, the true thing that's happening versus what the management is saying. But I mean, just presenting to you what the management is saying here. Yeah, I mean, that's what management has to say, right? You know what's yeah. really not sexy? <laughs> a government <laughs> consulting services company, right? Right. right. Like, no, hey, that's, we're, that's we're, we're Booz Allen part two, yeah. right? Like, yeah. it's, it's yeah. not, yeah. there's nothing no, no gross explosion. No offense yeah. to anyone yeah. for Booz Allen Hamilton who happens to be listening. It's a fine institution, but a very low. Do you work there? <laughs> Do you work at Booz? I don't work at Booz. That's our listenership, so I think we're okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Uh, well, I, I, technically, people would say I don't work at all. So um, that's uh, <laughs> yeah. that's yeah. why you're the man. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think you. I think as a manage. I think as management here, you have to say stuff like that. And I again, my bullshit meter is off the charts because I've. I, it took me until I was working with this other company, you know, under the hood, basically an employee, to understand how they were servicing these deals. There was no holy grail, right? I mean, this company is pitching itself as the holy grail. It is the unified AI and data analytics platform. That, if I had to put a buzz on it, that's what I would sell this as. It's it's the combination of those two things at scale, and and yeah. to do that in any environment, that's the holy grail in this industry. I mean, people would kill for that. I don't think they have it. I think they have elements of it like everyone else, and they've probably got some of the best people in the industry working on it. But I still think no matter what, you know, you're, you're still, there's still a manual element of just, you know, the, a, the AI can be the smart, a billion times smarter than a person. It still doesn't know how to connect the Excel spreadsheets that you made with your shorthand into this data set. It doesn't know right. how to take, you know, my, my email notes where I keep all of my accounting records and integrate that in because I use everyone's nickname. It, it doesn't matter how smart it is. At some point, a human being, for now at least, needs to sit down and parse through a lot of this stuff just to get people, you know, clients onboarded here. Forget ongoing yeah. services and maintenance, right? Like, I want to see the data this way. I don't, I don't care about these variables. I care about other variables or like, you know, and I'm sure some of these insights are not predictable, meaning like mm -hmm. it's going to tell you things you didn't even know to look for. And that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Then that's the holy grail element. And some of that does exist. I mean, this is a cool area. It's why there's billions and billions of dollars getting plugged into it. I just don't think it's at the point yet where it is, you know, automated to any degree and, and scalable to any degree where you're not spending heavy, heavy man hours implementing, onboarding, customizing, and handholding throughout the entire sales process. And they haven't scaled sales, to your point. 120-something customers, that's a joke. 
That's yeah. a joke. They're they're big but public I mean, entities and they've been working for a while. But tell, talk to me when they've onboarded ten thousand customers, like an SAC right. or somebody like that, right? Like now you have scale, but I, I can't believe it until I see it. Yeah, and then you know, to, to, to their to their credit, these one hundred twenty five customers have got to be the hardest one hundred twenty five customers to get in the entire world. You're talking about like people like the department, the Department of Defense. Where right. you could talk to them five months and maybe get a $50,000 pilot or something like that for one week. And then that's just to see if your technology works. And then you got to be thrown into a competition with like 99 other software providers. And then there's this whole two year process to do it. And, you know, like, so I mean, 125, I'm laughing at it, right? But there is a lot of work to try to get the DOD to start using your stuff. Yeah. No, I will give them credit across the board for the customers they have captured. That said, I do think it's a little bit of a domino effect, right? If you're working for the CIA, it's a lot easier to start working for other government entities. I mean, you you know yeah. you're trusted, you know, you've had you've been vetted, right? You maybe get fast tracked on on approvals or you know, uh, what's that called? Um, you know, approved vendor lists, all that stuff that takes forever for some startup out of nowhere. They're fast tracking it because they're insiders in the government side. Um, and, and again, you know, the I, crazy I think thing, uh-huh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, the crazy thing is on that point, you would think that that would happen. They got, they, they, because you, as you mentioned, they, they got started with a heavy invested investment from the VC arm of the CIA, which was called Incutel. Um, and yeah. they were, they, their first customer was the CIA working with the CIA analysts and iterating their software with the, those analysts to make it better and better. Um, and you would think that would give them connects with the army. And I think to some extent it did, but they tell the story about how when these, the army was fighting in Iraq or, uh, and in Afghanistan, I mean, still is, but, uh, during the time where the fighting was heaviest, um, a lot of uh, battalions, um, had heard about Pal- uh, 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 Palantir and like, it was something ridiculous. Like over 50% of them, the command battalion commanders wanted to use Palantir to integrate uh, data on the battlefield and make decisions quicker. And the army refused to deploy Palantir. And it put them through this like two year process before it actually went into a pilot. Meanwhile, there's a hot war going on and people are dying. Okay. Battalion commanders want this software to help them. And if it does help them, it could possibly save lives. But the army's like going along, plodding along for two years. And you know why? It's, they're saying, according to Palantir's story, it's because the U.S. Army didn't want to buy outside software. They wanted to build yeah. what Palantir was doing by itself internally and spend a bajillion, of, like a huge sum of money, okay? And didn't make it but still wanted to spend a bajillion more to keep on the process for seven more years of fighting to try to build what Palantir had. And it wasn't until like Palantir actually like literally sued the army that things changed for them. Um, There was this rule called rule 2377, which is on the books. and the rule just states that the U.S. government, including the Army and other government agencies, cannot actually try to build its own software packages if 
it has been shown that a commercially um, available one uh, is is ready to use. Um, and that rule was in the books, but the army was ignoring it because it, organizations have this like beast-like tendency to only want to like use the stuff that they built themselves. Um, and they had to sue, a paladin had to sue in court and the court had to uphold a pre-existing law in order to reinforce the need for the U.S. Army to give Palantir a fair shake. And that's actually when the U.S. Army did actually begin to deploy Palantir um, at scale. So I'm saying the story because you said that um, you were saying that like the, the relationship with the CIA uh, might have helped them. And to a certain extent, it might have helped them with like brand name and recognition. But there's so much internal politics in the U.S. government, including the U.S. Army, that like even during a hot war where battalion commanders wanted this software uh, on the battlefield, they, they had to sue the U.S. Army to get deployed. <laughs> yeah, and, I think that's more of an indictment on the U.S. Army than it is a, <laughs> a problem with Palantir. I know, but that's yeah. also, this is the market that they're playing in, right? This is the market yeah, I know. they chose it to play in, right? And the crazy yeah. thing is, I mean, in 2017, there before um, the court upheld the Rule 2377, um, Palantir's revenues with the U.S. Army were 6.6 billion. That's it for the entire year. But after the ruling um, upheld the need to buy commercial software, the U.S. Army revenue went to 53 million, and then the year after that, 78 million. So. Um, that ruling really had an effect because their revenues for the U.S. Army went 12x from six-ish million to 78 million um, in two years. Um, and as part of their, I'm mentioning this also because as part of their the bull case, you know, for Palantir, it is that the ruling only happened, let's say, late 2018, and that has a massive effect and implications not only for where Palantir is in the um, in the U.S. Army and the military, but also with anything else that's federal government, because that rule applies to the entire government. And so many other agencies now that are forced to literally consider Palantir, whereas before they were like, go away, we're just going to build this ourselves, right? And now they're yeah. forced to look at it. And so the opportunity, they're arguing that their opportunity is there. I mean, if you think about the revenues 12xing in two years for just one client alone, um, they're arguing that there is now a massive opportunity expansion and those revenues will grow, grow rapidly. That's, that's part of their bullish case. Yeah, and it, it, the same bullish case can be made that if you're going to build your initial traction and inroads in the most difficult industry to crack into from a privacy and data compliance you know, uh, perspective. How easy is it going to be for them to go to, you know, your your standard enterprise customers? Should be a lot easier, I would imagine, to go, you know, go sell software to, uh, you know, Walmart to, to get actionable insights from their customer data than it would be to sell to the DOJ, right? Um, so, yeah, I agree with you. I think there's massive growth potential, just inbound revenue. You know, it's, it's going to be a lot easier for them to parlay this footprint and say, look, we work with every, the top, highly, most, most highly secure and trusted entities in the United States. Trust us with their data. Like, 
let us dig into your data, like you're not going to get a lot of pushback. <laughs> and I can't imagine, you know, InBev is going to give them a hard time about giving them data after they work with every one of these entities. Um, again, more ethical concerns there, but I, I do think you can leverage that footprint to very quickly get, you know, traditional enterprise adoption, uh, which yeah. you're going to see massive growth, right? But again, it, it yeah. comes back to me, it comes back to how you service those clients. Uh, right. until, until I'm confident that there's a way to scale the business, all you need to do is hire some salespeople. And I don't think you're going to have a hard time selling this holy grail of AI into any customer. Um, you know, the issue is just going to be, what do you do once you start landing these guys? And, and it's a lot of work to do. I don't, I don't think the economies of scale in, in the government sector necessarily apply to the private sector in the same way, right? Like you're going to see all kinds of different challenges and different firewalls and, and, and cloud, you know, and I got to deal with a lot of cloud data that I don't think the government utilizes into the same degree, hybrid cloud Mm -hmm. environments, all kinds of stuff. That's just going to be difficult to work with and integrate. yeah, and I mean, I, 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 I do think, yeah, of course. And they're going to run it, you know, look at like, you know, I don't know if you consider IBM Watson a competitor, right? But yeah, you have other highly sophisticated, yeah, Snowflake for sure. I mean, you have, I could look, I could rattle off a list of a hundred really good AI startups that are doing really incredible predictive intelligence. Um, but I do think, I do think they have a differentiator here by saying that they have, you know, this, this, this huge and impressive government footprint. If I'm a buyer and I'm looking at Snowflake and I'm looking at Palantir to solve the same problem, like I am not worried at all about my date with Palantir, right? They, they are now the, the data trusted, the top data trusted vendor. Uh, that's valuable. But again, you know, even if they can very quickly onboard a bunch of uh, uh, or sign up a bunch of enterprise customers, I don't know if the business scales in that way. And, and maybe that's why they haven't invested heavily in sales and marketing. I've never seen an ad for Palantir. Have you? Right. No, no I've never seen. I've never met. I don't even know if they have a dedicated sales team in, in the private they, sector at all. They did so mention like, that um, they're, they're a very small company. Like I think no, the headcount no more than twenty five hundred people. Um, but they did the in the investor day presentation. They did say that they are now investing in um, a direct sales force, like an inside sales force. Um, and they but they said that they're not making it a huge amount of headcount, like. It's probably somewhere between three and four percent of their headcount is going to be an inside sales force, uh, probably dedicated to actually selling into enterprise customers. Yeah, yeah, and and they'll do just fine. Uh, but again, does the margin change? Mm-hmm. And if the margin doesn't change, then it's you know it's a services firm, and and it's cool. They have some tech backbone. They have great talent. They have a good team. That's what you need in any good consulting firm. Uh, but I don't know if it becomes, if you can look at it and trade on the stock, which is what we ultimately care about here, on, right, on a right. software multiple. Yeah. Now, digging into this, okay, I think this is a good point for us, for, for me to, to to present to you the way the CEO thinks about the business model of Palantir. Um, one of the things about it is that they are willing to take horrible economics up front because I think they want to play the long game here. And the sweet spot is getting to the long game for them, because that's when you start making money. Um, And to do that, you have to get through this horrible initial phase where the economics are terrible. And that's reflected in the way they describe their business model. They said that there's, for customers, um, there's really three phases. There's the acquire phase, which has horrible economics. And then there's the expand phase, which has a little bit better economics. And there's the scale phase, where it's like super sweet economics. 
And the way that he, you know, to dig into the acquire phase, he's saying, okay, well, yeah, this is, this is pretty bad. It, it, basically, we're running loss leaders here. They're taking a loss. It's the beginning of the relationship. And we just want to like introduce users in the enterprise to what our technology does, get a feel for what they want, and just start that relationship. And then, um, uh, obviously, the, 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 what they really want is to have a, a critical mass of users within the enterprise get familiar and, in a way, addicted to what Palantir can give them in terms of the data integration and the analytics from it, right? And the typical um, revenue size for um, the companies that are in the acquire phase is these are customers that bring in less than 100,000 in revenue per year. I mean, if you think about how vanishingly small 100,000 in revenue is um, for an enterprise uh, software thing and all these forward deployed engineers you've got at that place, it's basically nothing. It's a pittance, right? It's like pennies. They're throwing pennies in front of you, and now you're throwing in all your best engineers to try to help them out. The economics have to be horrible, and it, it and they are. Like if you look at the customers in the wire phase, um, they basically contributed sixty five million dollars worth of loss in the full year of twenty nineteen, and um, the what. I think because if Palantir has a long-term vision, their hope is you need to suffer through the acquire phase because that helps you get to the expand and the scale phases. Now, the way they define the expand phase is these are companies that bring in more than 100000 in revenue per year, but still have this like negative margin. Um, in 2019, they had... 176 million in revenue that they collected from customers that were in the expansion phase, um, but they were still contributing like a 43% loss. So it was hurting, like the fact that they exist, like really hurts uh, uh, Palantir's margin because you know they were basically putting out a dollar and losing 43 cents. That kind of makes like doesn't make any sense. Um, and uh, that well, that was worth about 160 million in revenue um, uh, for this year, and uh, that that's still at a loss. Now, getting to the part where I think they call they think about this as the promise, it's called the scale phase. Um, they define scale phase as any customer who's providing more than 100,000 in revenue um, and is also at a positive contribution margin to the organization. So the fact that they're bringing in revenue is helping the actual margins because it's a profitable business um, that they have there. It's a profitable contract. And in 2019, that was roughly 565 million in revenue. And the margins were around um, 55%. And for that cohort of business, um, that's growing at 30% this year. And then also the margins have gone up from 55 to 68%. And Scale, I think, is where it gets to be potentially interesting. Um, like they give you a case study kind of explaining what scale looks like. So in, um, they're talking about like this customer who is like a bank and the bank has a compliance division that's using the Foundry platform for, for Palantir. And, you know, they began the work with the 
the, the bank in 2016 on one use case with one department. And they deployed all these forward embedded engineers um, to do all the data engineering, build the pipes, and then make app, apps for, like create apps from scratch for the company or one department for a single use case. And that was in 2016. In 2017, um, the company, the bank started to get used to it and they expanded from that single use case to um, a bunch of use cases. Um, and it still required a lot of Palantir forward embedded engineers to expand to a bunch of use cases. Um, but by the next year, which was 2018, so we're talking two years into this now. The bank IT department felt comfortable enough to actually just take over all the application development and the data engineering hookups. So the bank's own IT staff was now comfortable enough to, to take over and then started using Foundry um, completely independently. You didn't need to have forward embedded engineers working at that bank anymore. And that was in 2018. And in 2020, the bank has now expanded to every to over 70 use cases. And if we're talking about fees, at the very beginning in 2016, the bank paid three million per year. And in 2020, because of all of the use cases, now the bank's paying 20 million per year. So a lot of suffering and now getting to scale. That's what they're talking about. And yeah. Yeah. So that's the kind of that they're arguing is happening. And they're saying that um, if you think that the two-year deployment time was horrible, don't worry because that was what we used to do in 2016 to get to scale. And we've now invested a lot of resources into shortening that ramp-up time. So they give another case study about um, another bank a European bank who was using Foundry. And this time, this bank um, was onboarded in 2018. Same thing, one use case in a single business unit. And it's now 2020, so two years later. And they've ramped up to 60 use cases across 10 business units with 200 users, 200 power users, and 7,000 weekly users. So a lot of people are using it in the bank. Um, and you can see that like in 2016, it took them like, two years just to ramp up and then um, to like a, a stage where the bank department could um, take over. And then two years after that to get to 70 use cases. So four years total to ramp. But now in this case study from 2018, they're talking about ramping in a similar um, environment in two years instead of four years. So they really want to accelerate that acquire and expand phases in that. Again, every environment is going to be so unique. So the yeah. fact that they were able to run in two years and one in four years doesn't really tell you much, especially across such a small sample size of customers. It's entirely possible that that customer would have taken four years to onboard, you know, earlier in their phase and, and now only takes two. That's possible. That's one story. Uh, and of course, the, the processes, the pro, the procedures, the software itself, everything is becoming more sophisticated. So I would hope you know, um, I would hope the time goes down to onboard and, and ideally they can, you know, the customer can be fully autonomous, uh, as quickly as possible, right? Then you can just be charging. Then your margins start to look like software margins. Um, but 
again, I, I, you know, even this bank, right? Like banks are, are, are not necessarily that complex. They, they have data, you know, restrictions that make them hard to work with. But if you put those aside because you're leveraging government technology, essentially, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe it's not that difficult to onboard versus like, a massive retailer or a massive industrial manufacturer or, you know, an energy company, right? Those might actually be more difficult. So there's just not enough sample size. You know, that, that story makes sense. And, and I, it would have to make sense for them to have an exciting future in this business. Right. I don't know if I believe it. Yeah. It's hard because you're right. These are case studies. And, you know, whenever a company starts talking about individual case studies, I'm like, you pick the best example in here. You would never build a case right. study that was shitty, right? So I, I, I don't know. I'd like to see averages. I'd like to see the whole thing. Um, now, I mean, now that we get was, to see some of these numbers disclose, as they're in this expansion phase, we can start to see how much their margins shift, right? Like exactly. I, I will be keeping an eye on it, right? Does the margin move from 6.5% to 15 to 20% in this expansion phase? Okay, now we're becoming a software company and we're, we're losing some of that upfront investment and loss leader in terms of deployment and onboarding that that's an interesting story but i'd have to see it in the real numbers and not a jump from six to thirty percent over six months with no expense right that doesn't do it for me well they um i think their vision is that once a company is in the scale phase like the fully mature scale phase the margins is going to be somewhere in the 80 to 90 percent range it's pure margin. It's like the sweetest margin because you don't have to do any work. The, the software right. embedded into the organization, people are using it. You charge on, a, I think, either per seat or per use basis. And it's just make it, it's printing money at that point. You know, you don't have to have any more forward deployed engineers. You would probably have to have forward deployed engineers if the bank needed help expanding to other use cases, which I think you would gladly do at that point. Um, but if they didn't, and they right. just kind of settled with using the data, you would have like close to 90% margin. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 in that sense, it, it, assuming it reaches that point, it reminds me of something like Salesforce, where they don't even do their own implementations, right? They have third party <laughs> do, do, I mean, they don't have to do a thing. Amazing. All they have to yeah. do is continue to invest in the product so that people yeah. continue to use it. You know, it's slightly different, um, but, but same concept from a software, you know, use it, you know, set it, have someone else put it in, have someone else do your help desk and, you know, deal with customer service, have someone else do everything. Uh, yeah. You just kind of build up the product. Uh, and yeah. and that's, a, that's a great place to be. It is. Yeah. It's, uh, and that's been a, a very high performing stock over the last 10 years, too. Um, so a couple of pieces of data that I, I thought were very interesting um, from listening to the CFO speak at the Investor Day presentation. So I'll just kind of rattle them off um, and, and maybe we can talk about the implications. So if we just cherry pick their top 20 customers and we ask, how long do they on average last? They say on average, they've lasted 6.6 years. So there is some churn in the, even their top 20 customers, 6.6 years. Um, if you ask, what is the average revenue of the top 20 customers? Roughly 25 million per customer per year for revenue. Now, if you kind of zoom out and not look at the top 20 customers, but you look at all customers, like all outstanding contracts, and you ask yourself, how long does an outstanding contract on average last? 
the the last the the, the average life is 3.5 years. So that's very interesting to me because that means that the best customers last twice as long as their general customers. Um, and also the average revenue in general across all customers is roughly 5.6 billion. So um, obviously a lower revenue than their top 20 customers, but also a shorter life. And I, what I suspect is happening is that I think Palantir works not for everybody, but for like certain people for certain use cases. And when it does work, it works really awesomely well. And when it doesn't work, it really doesn't work. Does that make sense? Um, and so when they see customers um, and like a small fraction of them, really, it does really, really work. It becomes, they grow to become the top 20 customers. They last for 6.6 years on average. And then they're willing to pay all the way up to 25 million on average in revenue. Um, because Palantir works so well for them. But for the ones where Palantir, for whatever reason or the other, doesn't work so well, they actually use it for a couple of years, and then they go, yeah, okay, let's just terminate this contract. It's not working for us, right? And so that's why the, the general lifetime of all the outstanding contracts being three and a half years um, might be uh, more of a signal that um, of, of that particular phenomenon. Um, yeah. And, uh, the, the other thing that the CEO I'm actually surprised that they have that. I mean, how long Palantir hasn't been around that long, right? 17 years old. Yeah. 2003. It's 17 year old company. I don't imagine they had a product, a viable product for many years, right? You're just building pure AI and machine learning. I don't know when they commercialized this with the CIA. And and by the way, the CIA is their first customer. So like, right. Basically, CIA invested, spun this thing out, and, and built it. So, like that's that's a kind of a cool story in and of itself. But you know, seventeen years, maybe five to seven years building, they've been in market for a while. If they let's say they've been in with commercial product and paying customers for ten years, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. Six and a half years, you you don't have a huge data set there to say that your churn is at six and a half years. I'm actually surprised at that. I, I would think everyone they're working with would have stuck around. I'm actually surprised that uh, they're putting that mark on there. Does that right. do anything for you? I don't, I don't know. I would well, think I would think in the 10 years since it's been commercialized in your first you know, batch of customers, you're going to lose a couple. But even if you average that out, I would imagine the vast majority of those 100 and whatever customers are um, you know, going to stick around for more than six years. It's a heavy investment to put this thing in. Yeah, I would too. I would, I would have too. And I'm kind of surprised that the average duration is a lot shorter, especially since the sales cycle is so long just to get into the company in the first place. Once you do, the biggest benefit would be to have them stay for like as long as possible. Now, you have a, a good point, which is that the, the, this we might not actually know what the true average duration is for their top 20 customers. For all we know, it could be 30 years. Um, and like, you know, you hear the stories about like how certain government agencies still use like these old computer systems that have vacuum tubes in there. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but basically they've been like maintained by, I don't know, IBM consultancy for the like 40 years straight, but they're still like on punch cards or whatever. Um, that's like a long lifetime. And uh, I-, I would imagine that maybe um, over the long term, um, the uh, lifetime 
of their government customers might be a lot longer than what we're seeing here in the data. And that's, as you correctly argued, I think it could be a, a function of that uh, Palantir hasn't been around long enough for us to see, right? Um, so, yeah, I'm trying so to look they, up really quickly while we're talking uh, to see if I can find Salesforce's, again, not the best comp here, but just trying to see what their average customer length is. Right, um, I'd be curious to see that number. Yeah. And they're high single you, digits in the year for churn. That's what I can find here. High single digits. So, uh, like 9% oh, would be a high. Yeah. yeah. To get right. to 6.6, maybe like 15% churn for them. Um, so yeah, it seems high, doesn't it? It seems a little high. Yeah. Um, it, it, so, I mean, if I were to try to, uh, like be an, a, a, a person who was trying to uh, apologize for this, right? Um, I could say that they were still trying to get their bearings with their software. And so they had higher trend during that time. And, um, it's fixed now, that kind of thing. So, <laughs> but that's if I was trying to be in the most generous mindset possible. Just looking in the face of it, that number is not super impressive. Yeah, I'm not the most generous. I'm not gonna. I'm not that generous. I, I would think this would be much <laughs> stickier. Uh, I, uh, right? Like this would be harder to pull out. Yeah. If I'm gonna invest in a data tool that that's gonna, you know, connect all of my different data systems and give me insights. That's different. And, you know, with CRM, it, it, there's tools. You know, you want to migrate from Salesforce to something else. There's there's a tool that'll extract your data and plug it in. There's a million service providers that you can pay to migrate your systems and there's a bunch of good tools out there there's there's really you know industry specific stuff there's a million options there are not a million options for what palantir is doing there might be some spot solutions for parts of it but there's again this i'm, I'm going back to the holy grail concept I mean, there's nobody else that claims to do that at scale for the degree they're able to do it i don't think that's an investment you make lightly you're also paying yeah. a lot you know a lot for this so to me i, I don't know man that that seems high for the short amount of time they've been around and the types of customers. Government doesn't churn like that. Those guys, you will sit on vendors. I, I've gone into government deals and seen software from, you know, they're running COBOL code, right? Like they've got stuff in yeah. there from the 80s and 90s. So like, <laughs> exactly. I, I'm surprised that they would churn out something like Palantir in under under seven years when you're looking at almost double the attrition rate of something like Salesforce. Right, right. Anyway, that, go ahead, continue. That is cause to worry. And then, you know, the other numbers that the CFO um, said that were interesting were, they view their commercial total of regressible market as being 56 billion. I don't know how they calculated it. That's the number. The government TAM yeah, is 63 billion. So if you add those two together, it'll be somewhere close to 120 billion of TAM. Um, and you might say that's like, that's like, that's, I guess that's pretty big, but it's not world beating big. It's not like Apple or Amazon, like whatever their TAMs are, right? Um, but, and uh but to their credit whatever they do if they get to scale at uh in their markets their margins are going to be huge because it's just software so they're going to be like you know like like if you imagine 100 billion in revenue but like with 90% gross margins is still like 90 billion which is a lot um so you could have low revenue but high margins um, incredibly high margins um meaning that you could compare against even an Apple, which has um, like high margins, but not as high as like 80 or 90% because it's kind of a hardware business, mm -hmm. uh, but huge revenues right. because it's literally like selling iPhones to everybody on earth, right? 
So you can kind of like see maybe like if you looked at it over the long run, it could be a, a big valuable business, but it needs to ramp up and be basically everywhere in government, right? And everywhere in the commercial enterprise space. And right. what the CFO said was their long range target is that their gross margin will be north of 85%. The contribution margin, as in the new bit, the margin for the new business that they add on, which remember has horrible economics at the beginning. They're targeting over the long run that the contribution margin for new business would be 70%. So profitable from day one, not as profitable as their stable gross margin of um, 85%, but still like pretty good. Um, so mm-hmm. they're working, they're, they're thinking about in, I think their, their strategies to invest as much R&D as possible. So that you shorten the scale-up phase and then the contribution margin of business means that these businesses that they add will be profitable from day one rather than having to suffer through some sort of wandering in the wilderness where you're not making money working with these people. Um, And overall, I think they want, the the CFO said that their operating income would be 35%. That's taking into account all the costs of like sales and marketing, I guess. So um, that'll, you know, cut their... um, gross margin from 85% to 35% because of all of that SG&A cost. So do you want to go first or do you want me to go? I, I can't wait. You you, you, you rope and doped me last week where you, you strung me <laughs> along the entire pod and then, uh, and then flipped the switch on me. So I, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to, how to react. I'm, I'm, I'm eager to see, to be honest, I didn't do much of a deep dive into the financials. I, I'm too concerned at a valuation standpoint, at the margins, right? Do I treat this like a software business or do I treat this like a services business? Um, and if it's a services business, you know, it's it's really overpriced right now. I, again, granted, the margins can move, the growth potential, all that stuff. It doesn't mean that it's an investment in the long run. It just means that it's overpriced right now, I think, for what it is. Um, and then also, we didn't get into the way that they uh, they listed, right? Like they, they, you know, it's, um, yeah, they did a direct listing. Um, so they didn't, you know, they didn't do a traditional underwriting. I don't know if you saw that. That's the same thing Spotify did. I think Slack did that also. So it's like this weird thing where, you know, it's, it's shareholders issue directly to the market. There's no, there's no listing. There's no fundraise. So those are, those scare me in general early days. We should mention this stock IPO this year. So it's not, uh, it hasn't been on the market for a bunch of years to look at data. So, you know, you have some insider insider risk there that people just want to sell off their shares who have been, you know, eight-year employees of the company and want some liquidity. Just near term, there's a little extra risk when you list that way. So that plus the fact that, you know, I can't understand the, the fundamentals of the business and the fact that the comps I have for my own, you know, line of work and scuttlebutt in general uh, tell me that it's really hard to 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 become that 85% plus margin software company when everything needs to be highly tailored and customized to each individual customer. And that's what I've seen in my career. It's not it's it's possible that the world is changing that this is a better, newer, shinier technology that you know the AI can be applied to itself. It's recursive self-improvement and they can naturally give you better deployments and you know automate parts of the onboarding and yada, 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 right? I mean, there's a story there that is rational. I'm just not buying it. I, I, it scares me. I don't want to be drudged up in a, you know, in, in the very early days post IPO of a company that I can't see how they're going to achieve the valuation that they currently have. 
Now, again, that could change, right? Like, keep an eye on this one. It's an interesting company. Mm -hmm. It's the hottest space from a technology standpoint. It's the hottest space you could possibly in right now. So it's, you know, hot, super interesting. Some of the best talent in the industry working in the hardest hardest segment to crack into. And they've already not just cracked into it. They kind of dominate it. So there's a strong story to tell. Um, I just want to get a sense of, can they really become a product company? And I need to see more, right? I need to see how those initial sales guys do in the enterprise market and how quickly those customers ramp from, you know, their different stages of margin. Do they go, or do they, do they actually not convert as quickly into that high margin business as they're saying they do? And, you know, ideally they'll disclose that information publicly, the trajectory. So it's a stock I would keep an eye on. I don't think I'm a buyer. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. Um, I, I, I am, I think that, um, I'm just going to go with the conclusion right now, which is, I agree with you. I, I don't think I'm going to be a buyer for Palantir as well. Um, the, the reason is that there is, you, you're right. It is for a long, it has been for a long time, a services business where they're essentially customizing their software with horrible economics to customers. Now, I don't think they're stupid, right? Like, and that's such a, I think, an obvious problem to have. So you have to believe that, that if they're not stupid, that they're going to be doing these, accepting this horrible economics with the hope that one day they shall reach the promised land, okay? And that promised land is this sweet, sweet uh, scale phase where the customers are at like 80% margin. They don't need any more handholding or forward deployed engineers. They kind of build stuff on themselves and they just make you more and more money, right? That's like, I think where they're going. Now, for me, when I, when I think about that story, right? Which is, can they get to that scale phase? I begin to question it. And the, the source of my questioning is really from two major sources. One is, I do think that like a lot of use cases in a lot of different industries, they don't cross hybridize with each other very well. As in like the way that you truly solve, um, I don't know, uh, supply chain issues at a Chrysler mm-hmm. manufacturing plant is different from the way you solve um, the deployment of the physical engineering models for oil wells for BP. Like I think they're so, so, the, the the companies arguing that those problems in some secret way are the same so that such that their software could be deployed easily to solve those types of problems. And I'm like, but they don't really explain why. And on the face of it, I'm like, no, those are like completely different problems and you will have to customize to solve those problems. They're vastly different things, right? I don't think there's some sort of secret sauce that like for the software that connects those two problems and solves them easily. Easily without any like uh, deployment, um, deployment costs. And so like I'm super skeptical about their ability to deploy their general top technology stack and solve a wide range of business problems without like some degree of customization, even though their story is, yeah, we're doing exactly that. Um, and, uh, the other thing that, um, is giving me pause is that a lot of the stuff that they do, um, the, the, in terms of quoting gross margins at like 90%, if you dig into that, 
Like, it seems like it's plausible because of software. But what they also do that's a little bit, I think, dishonest in their accounting is they don't count the cost of stock-based compensation. Now, there's you're going to get into, like, some arcane arguments about, like, whether or not stock-based compensation is a real expense or not. But from the point of view, because it's not a cash expense, it's basically like you issue stock options to compensate your forward deployed engineers or your salespeople or whatever. Um, but but from the view of an investor, it's a real cost because the anytime stock options are issued, you dilute the um, the, the the share price uh, of each share because you're taking the whole value of the company and spreading it over a wider number of shares. So as an owner. You, that is a real cost to you if the company has to issue stock options to compensate its forward deployed engineers and salespeople. And they exclude the right. cost of uh, shares-based compensation in their gross margin. But in my mind, it's a necessary cost because how the hell are you going to sell it to the DOD? How are you going to sell it to like Fortune 500 enterprises without salespeople and forward deployed engineers? And yet, and they, you're compensating them, I think, using equity, but you're excluding the cost of that equity from your gross margin, and that doesn't like jive completely, right? Um, and they're like, they're, 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 they had somewhere like um, uh, 80 million in shares based cost um, this year, and um, you know they're they're like 70 something. Uh, I forget how many. How, how, that that's it's a lot. It's a significant portion. It's a material portion of what their um, their loss was this year. It might be somewhere around like thirty percent of what their um, margin loss was. So um, they're hiding it and they're not. They're ignoring it and they're pretending it like it's not a real cost, but it actually is a cost in my mind. And um, mm. the it might float down over time, but it's still going to be a significant amount. Of cost, where I feel like whatever they're reporting as the gross margins of eighty percent is um, is probably going to be south of that if you really try to try to include the um, the compensation costs for their sales force and also their forward deployed engineers. Um, so you know, and 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 the the story that they pick, the the story that they tell about accelerating deployments and then also being able to solve a wide variety of um, cases with very little customization of their general technology stack. To support that, they give like those cherry-picked case study examples. And you kind of just know that when somebody does that, those case studies are like the best possible situations as opposed to a generalized story. And so that doesn't give me a huge amount of confidence or data that um, they are turning things around. And I worry that there's not enough information there for me to actually make any um, strong judgment. So um, I think for those reasons, I, I wouldn't feel super comfortable um, with investing in talent here. Um, the, the last kind of thing was that I ran the numbers where I pretended that instead of 125 customers, they had 185 customers, let's say. Um, and then I was thinking they'd get to that in the next five years or 10 years or something like that. And instead of 25 million um, revenue that they have in the scale phase, I said, let's multiply that by four, 100 million, right? So their scale phase is four times bigger than mm -hmm. their current scale phase. And I said, okay, uh, nearly 200 customers, which is 185 customers. 
and then 100 million each brings in 18.5 billion in revenue. And I said, okay, I'm gonna ignore my quibble about the gross margins not being actually 85% because of this shares-based compensation. I'm gonna give them at face value and I'm gonna put it at 90%, 90% gross margin. And then um, if I float that down into like the operating income, um, quoting from the CEO's, the CFO's long-term target of 35% operating income, um, that would mean that they would get 6.5 billion in operating income off of the total revenues of 18.5 billion. Um, and then I slapped like, I don't know, a 30 multiple on it just because, um, I didn't want to put like somewhere like 40 or 50 uh, multiple on it because that's usually reserved for fast growing companies. And I don't view this company as a fast growing company in the sense that they're acquiring a lot of customers. They might be fast growing in the sense that once they, get a customer, that customer can ramp up use cases within the organization fairly quickly. So it's kind of like a weird, different different mindset. Not It's like use growth versus customer growth. But anyway, um, I didn't put a huge multiple on them. And then when I did that 30-something multiple, I got somewhere around $200 billion for market cap. And depending on the way you look at the number of shares outstanding today at a share price on November 10th, 2020, $14 a share. Um, I think that's around uh, like a 30 something billion market cap um, on um, 2.8 billion shares outstanding. And uh, when I do the numbers, like if, if you start off at 30 something billion and then you go to like 200 billion, um, that might be like around 20 something percent CAGR um, over, let's say, 10 years. And that's if like everything happens. Um, in a very generous way. Um, so even if everything goes really well, you're getting something at like a 20% CAGR. And I would like something north of that. Like I'm actually looking for stuff that's like in the 30% range, just because if I'm wrong and it gets cut in half, I'd like to be in the 15% range. But here, if if, if it goes wrong, I'm going to be in the sub 10% range, right? And then, uh, for all the risks right. that I'm taking, I don't, I don't feel like 10% is good enough conversation, compensation here. Um, and then there's like, that's also ignoring the issues of the dilution to, to the share space compensation. So even in the rosiest scenario, the math doesn't work out, which means that, uh, that that's that, like, there's so many uh, variables and bad things happening that I kind of just want to take a step back and say, this is too complicated. There's probably some, some easier opportunities. Than this one in here. Yeah. Is there a price you that this becomes appealing to you just because of the upside? Um, if I uh, play around with the numbers and it, I think um, it was getting to let's say below six dollars per share, uh, it could get interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Um, right now it's pretty. Yeah. I mean, I, again. Yeah, it's just way overpriced. I mean, that was my first, my first read too. It's just, okay, this would be interesting if it was, you know, uh, discounted off the IPO price, which was high. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, even there, I mean, like, I, I wonder, you know, like, I guess keep an eye on it. It, it, it. The upside here is so appealing. It's so, uh, alluring, right? To, to have that magical software that can do anything and has the, you know, that's the future. It's this AI, real, true AI, not uh, a series of algorithms or, you know, uh, 
you know, uh, what we, what we call in industry RPA, like robotic uh, process automation, where you're doing stuff that's, you know, repeatable and predictable. The, having a real AI that can deduce stuff that you cannot uh, is amazing. Uh, it's amazing. And, and that's why there's so much money going into this space. These guys, with everything we just said, with such a huge advantage, and and frankly, you know, 17 years under their belt with everything they have, uh, I just, it's really appealing. I want to keep an eye on it. I want to keep tabs on them. I think the way the market works sometimes, it looks a little more like a popularity contest, not necessarily on fundamentals. And this could be mm-hmm. just a really hot brand in that space that, you know, it's it's like, a, it's almost like a Bitcoin. Like, I don't know if Bitcoin's any better as a virtual currency than the other 5,000, but it is the standard bearer. If these guys become the yeah. standard bearer for AI in industry, I mean, that's, that's a really, really valuable position, just position alone. Uh, and so that makes it worth keeping an eye on. Forgetting the, the, the financials and the valuation and the price and, you know, like you said, you just went through a very rosy scenario and it's still not that appealing. Uh, so I, I don't even think that that's what it is. I think it becomes, you know, you, you start to show things that it can do that you can't imagine yet, right? It's mm-hmm. like... I don't even know I could make up an application, but, you know, they were doing border control. Maybe they can predict where the, you know, it's, it's all the scary movies, right? I mean, it's all that stuff. It's, you know, whatever, you know, I don't remember which, what was the Tom Cruise one with like the, oh, yeah. the, the uh, like, minority report, the, minority. Report. Yeah. With like those weird like profits in the water or whatever. Like <laughs> it's that, like that's what this software yeah. is. It's telling you the yeah. future and it's, and it's yeah. seeing things you can't see. Of course, that's interesting. It's interesting enough to make a movie about. So, like, you got to keep an eye on it. But at this price and at, the, at all the assumptions you're going to need to make at a business level for them to become uh, operational, it's a little too much risk for me this early. I, I'm with you. I, I think I think I lay off of it, but I do keep a very close eye on this. You know, relative to the other companies we talked about, you know, Peloton that's in you know a, a fairly predictable space, right? It's not. It's, yeah. You know, they haven't reinvented the wheel there. It's an exercise bike. <laughs> you yep. talk about with Square. They're doing some really yeah. cool stuff. Yeah, I know, big screen and yeah. now a treadmill and with screen that moves. Yeah. No, but like yeah. you know, the other stuff we've looked at has been in in established spaces. Point of sale has been around forever, right? So like, mm-hmm. this is something that's not established, and the sky's the limit. And it, maybe it, maybe we're doing the wrong comp here. Maybe it's not. Salesforce, right? It's, it's something else. It's something that hasn't existed before. And if you're not deploying stuff like this in your business, you're going to die. And and yeah. if they have that kind of positioning, you know, you'd be an idiot to say, oh, the, the, the 20 CAGR, you know, it's not enough for me. Like, you're going to go back and kick yourself and be like, you know, and any company not running this is a dinosaur. So I don't know. I, I definitely want to keep close eyes on it. I, I I agree with everything you said. And I'm usually, you know, more bearish on everything. I'm, I'm a skeptic by nature. Uh, but, but, you know, this one is interesting. I was interested in the IPO. I've been watching it. Uh, I'll continue to watch it. You know, I could see, you know, somehow macroeconomic factors with the election and stimulus and everything else. You could see a pretty heavy drop here. If it did get into that single digit range and it starts to get interesting, we might want to, you know, do a revisit, do a revisiting of this podcast. Yeah. Oh, two other things, footnotes that I wanted to include in here. Um, they have one of the strangest um share voting structures i've seen so well, when you buy the stock you're buying yeah they retain outside. all right <laughs> you're here yeah. uh, you're on the outside looking in yeah like, the, the, when you buy the stock you're buying a class a share which has one vote and then there's like a different class of share which are employee shares i think they're called class b or something like that which have 10 votes per share and then there's this like super elite like 
weird stock called Class F stock. Only three people have this. It's Peter Thiel, uh, who was one of the founders, and then Alex Karp, who's the CEO, and then this other guy, I can't remember his name, but he's like the other co-founder at the beginning too. So these three guys with their Class F shares, get this, the Class F shares have variable voting rights. And I'm like, what the F does variable voting rights mean? Like usually you're told how many votes you get per share, right? And then it's like, no, 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 no. These, these, these magical class F shares, they're guaranteed to always change their voting rights so that the founders always control 49.999999% of the total voting power of all capital stock. And I'm like, what? I've never heard of such a, I've never heard of such a voting right. I've never heard of that class of shares. It's crazy. No matter what happens, they'll always have close to half of the vote. Like those three people. I mean, like, wow. Like, I saw that and I was like, that's nuts. Now, they kind of spin it around and say, well, we are a very sensitive company. We work with a lot of sensitive data for government organizations and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And so we don't want control of the company to be easily able to like float outside of the uh, the CEO and the, uh, the the founders of the company. So they're maintaining tech. Yeah, dude. Imagine if uh, some Chinese entity bought a majority stake there. That's a big right. problem. Then that could be that could be an issue, right? They could force themselves all onto the board of directors and then start peeking into the technology. Oh, and then what about this data here? Like, so I can see that that's an issue. Yeah. And that's, that might be why they're able to create such a strange structure. But from like just the raw uh, optics of it as an investor, I'm like, wow, these guys, you're, you're buying into the economics of the company, but you don't get a lot of the voting rights as well to the extent that that matters to you. I mean, that's a, a weird quirk of the company. So, um, yeah, I would put this on the watch list. I am interested in see, watching them. Um, and. I think that the other quirky thing about them is that, you know, they did the direct listing. And I think uh, the reason why they did the direct listing was partially because a lot of employees who had been working them for like God knows how long needed some liquidity at some point. So IPO was good. But oh, they were allowed, the employees were allowed to like sell 20% of their, their, their shares on the day of the IPO. Um, and then there was supposed to be some sort of restriction on the remaining 80% of this year's sold that the, that the employees hold. Um, and the restriction is going to be lifted after the, um, the earnings call, which is actually happening on Thursday this week. So I am going to watch to see what happens to the share price, uh, after the 80% restriction has been lifted in the days following the, uh, in the days following the, uh, the, in the, the, the quarterly earnings call when the restriction is lifted. And that might create an opportunity. Who knows? Yeah, that'd be interesting. We should keep tabs. You want to do a quick review of Square and Peloton, where they are today and how we're doing? Yeah, yeah. So we... Um, Real quick. As I, yeah, so Square, we invested at, in, in, in that company, um, uh, bought it at $181 per share. I It's been a wild ride, okay? I think Square <laughs> has, has, has in, the, in the time that we've... Uh, bought it it dropped precipitously to 155 dollars per share at one point 
and then floated back up to a crazy 198, close it to 200, and then floated mm-hmm. back down to like 172. So it's below, it's like $9 below where we bought it. Um, we'd also bought options, um, leaps for 2023 for Square. Um, and that um, loses or gains money at a multiple of whatever the percentage is, the gain or loss on the actual common stock. So if we have a loss on the um, Square uh, common stock, we would probably have a proportionally greater loss in the uh, the options. I haven't checked the price yet. So that's where we are. Um, the other thing is that, you know, we didn't buy Peloton, um, as I recall. Neither of us wanted to buy Peloton. And at the time that Perfect. we looked at it, it was somewhere around um, 100 and, uh, what was it, $150 per share, $140 per share, something like that, maybe $130. Um, and it's, it, it's, it's had a rough couple of weeks. It's now down to 105 per share. Um, but as I recall it, when we were talking about it, I, I think I was comfortable with it in the sub 50, sub 60 range. So it would have to drop a lot more in order for our, for me to feel like it is a compelling, like once in a lifetime opportunity. Um, but you know, now that it's 105 per share versus, um, what it was before, it's certainly at a discount, perhaps not enough of a discount where, um, it would be super compelling. Um, one thing of note is that I don't know if you were following it, but they did announce a collaboration with Beyonce. I don't know if you heard about that. Oh, you think um, I would yeah. miss that? Oh, <laughs> I just saw it in the news and I was like, oh, that's interesting. Um, I think that's interesting uh, because Beyonce's got a lot of like name recognition and star power. And yeah. the fact that she's collaborating with this bike company not number one means that she really truly loves it um, enough to like work with it. And number two, um, she could pull in a lot of other people who are working to create content with Peloton. And now it becomes this like interesting, like content Netflix for fitness type thing rather than just a commodity exercise bike. If they have the ability to pull people like Beyonce into the mix, right? So that's a bullish thing to note for them. Yeah. 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 No, it's, uh, we don't need to go back into either of those stocks. Uh, I just like to revisit the keep us honest. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Great. So I think we're done for today. I don't All right, man. So we're going to buy, uh, buy 10,000 shares. I'm in. Sign me up. <laughs> what? <laughs> we'll put, place it on the watch list and be cautious. That's a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. We'll put it on the watch list. All right, All right Gil. Good talk, buddy. Okay. Talk to you, man. Catch you later. Bye.